Well, go ahead and grab a seat. Uh, let me add my welcome. My name's Alistair. I'm the lead pastor here at St. Peter's, and it's a joy to be with all of you. And I don't know, I, I feel like I should just name what probably a lot of us are feeling. I already really miss Preston. Anybody else? Oh, Preston. They're, they're on Galliano Island this weekend, thus why they're not with us. But yeah, I was just feeling it. And I just want to thank all of you for sending him off so well last week, for sharing so much love with the Gordon family. And no, you're going to get to see them a few more times before they move at the end of June. Um, it's my conviction, it really is, it is my conviction that the Christian life, Christian spirituality is not boring. It's not boring. Now, I realize it can present that way at times. It can feel a bit stuffy or weird. I mean, a bunch of people, adults playing with a Mr. Potato Head. I guess that's not boring, but it's weird. Uh, you know, it, the music, the sermons, the seeming rigidity of what living as a Christian looks like, it can all seem very boring, but it is definitely not boring. We've just read a prayer written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus, and he prays that the church would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. This is the heart of Christian spiritual formation, love that surpasses knowledge and experiencing the fullness of God. If it appears boring, it's my fault. It's the church's fault, but it certainly is not God's fault because when you push into the heart of what it is to follow Jesus, when you look for the substance of what it is to be a Christian, it is the fullness of God. And so as we continue in our series, Brick and Mortar, today we're going to look at what it means to be the body of Christ one more time. We've already looked at how Jesus Christ is the head of his body. We've considered in another sermon how we're all members of of his body, and today I want to talk about how we're being filled with all the fullness of God as his body. So just two points, the fullness and what it means to be filled. The fullness and being filled. So first, the fullness. A few weeks ago, uh, we looked at a portrait of Jesus in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, and we said this is a hymn or it's a liturgy of the early church. It's something they used to recite together and share with one another to teach them to see the beauty of Christ. And I want to reflect on this portrait of Christ one more time, uh, but this time we're going to dwell mostly on one verse. Verse 19, Paul writes, For in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And like we did a few weeks ago, we're going to couple this, with a, this reflection with a painting, Christ Crowned with Thorns, by the Renaissance artist uh, Botticelli. So let's begin here. Paul says, In Christ, all the fullness of God. In Christ, all the fullness of God. Now, I don't presume we can fully comprehend what this means, but I do believe we can be apprehended by it. All the fullness of God, not some or part or a portion or a glimpse of God was in Christ. Paul proclaims all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ. 
all the fullness of God was pleased to descend into human form, to condescend into our very likeness, to dwell in the frailty and delight of a human body. Emily Dickinson writes this in a poem. I'm afraid to own a body. I'm afraid to own a soul. Profound, precarious property. Possession, not optional. And into this fearful reality of a body and soul, the fullness of God came to dwell. Into this profound, precarious property, the body of Christ, the fullness of God came to dwell. Possession, not optional. You know, Paul could have said the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, but he doesn't just say the fullness of God, does he? Did you notice he says it in the, uh, my mouth isn't working. He says it, all the fullness of God. Not just the fullness, all the fullness. Fullness already implies full. And he says all the fullness, all of it. That's wild. God in Christ did not hold back his presence in any way whatsoever. Now, when we think about Jesus, it makes sense if we initially turn our attention to his human nature, to his human form. It's, it's easier for us to first encounter Jesus on our own terms. And that's why God descends to become one of us so that we can meet him in the person of Jesus. But it is naturally easy, easier for us to see his humanity before we're apprehended by his divinity. Now, Jesus, he's fully human. He's not pretending to be human. He has a body and limbs, a face. He has his own distinct way of being in a body, mannerisms and, and, and movements and expressions. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, prophesied Isaiah, and no beauty that we should desire him. That is to say, Jesus dwelt in a very average, unremarkable Jewish body with olive brown skin. And he was raised in Nazareth, Nazareth of Israel. And so like all of us, his place would have deeply formed and shaped how he lived in his body. It would have rubbed off on him. He probably spoke with a bit of a rural backwater accent compared to the cosmopolitan accents of the day. And his lived experience was as an oppressed minority under Roman power and rule. All of these things would have shaped his life in his body. And yet, in this very real and very human body, the fullness of God, the presence, the character of God, was pleased to dwell. So look to this person, and you see God living and breathing in our midst. He only says what God says. He only does what God does. But I really do like how the novelist Francis Bufford helps keep the feet of Jesus on the earth of the ground. He, he writes this, he is as human as we are, but if you meet him, you're also meeting the being responsible for the universe. He has no halo. He does not glow in the dark. Special lighting effects do not announce his presence most of the time. Uh, if you cut him, he bleeds. God speaks in Christ with a voice that can tire God 
heals in Christ with a body that needs sleep. God loves in Christ with a heart that can break. God forgives in Christ with a body that bleeds. But there are moments. There are moments where we see a fuller portrait of Christ. We see the presence and character of God in his life, but the fullness of God also includes his glory and his power. Think about the transfiguration. You know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke record it. In Matthew's gospel, here's what we read. Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. They led him up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before him, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And there's the apostle John on the island of Patmos. He, he sees through a vision, he sees more clearly the divinity of Christ. And it's so transcendent and otherworldly. Here's what he writes in Revelation chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. John saw one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters, a.k.a. Lloyd. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. I mean, this is the same Jesus who became human, who bled, who died. The same Jesus who was raised from the dead yet still bore the scars of crucifixion in his glorified body. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in this human body. Light like the brightness of the sun, flames of fire for eyes, the roar of water for speech. Yes, we encounter ourselves in Christ. We encounter humanity, but we don't encounter a mere human. He's not less than human. He's fully human and fully God. Two natures in one whole indivisible person. In Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And take note of an important word. I think this is a word we, we could breeze over, and it is so important. Can you guess what word I'm about to say? What word do you think I'm going to say? Pleased. Pleased. Would it be funny if it was like in? The word is in. Actually, it is really important. In Christ, that appears like hundreds of times in Pauline letters. In Christ, like that is your reality in salvation. I could preach for hours on those two words, in Christ, but you get pleased. Pleased. The fullness of God was not obligated to dwell. The fullness of God was not begrudged to dwell or backed into a corner to dwell. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ. Think about the words the father spoke over his baptism. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. All the fullness of God descended into the human body of Jesus. And this happened because God was pleased to do it. In the fullness of God, then, when we think of the fullness of God, we should think of the pleasure of God, the delight of God, the joy of God. As the psalmist writes, in his presence is the fullness of joy. 
This means, friends, that God is not aloof, that God is not stoic, thank God. God is not disinterested. He's probably not Anglican. Took, see how long that took you guys? The fullness of God is pleased to dwell in Christ, is pleased to dwell among us. And so Christianity is nothing less than an invitation into the very pleasure of God. The delight and joy of being united to the fullness of God through our union of being in Christ. The fullness of God is pleased to dwell in our humanity. This means delight is in the heart of God, but it also means that the fullness of God in Christ means that his fullness is the fullness of humanity as well. Because the fullness of God cannot be pleased to dwell in the internal disorder of sin. God cannot be pleased to dwell in sin or in corruption or in impurity or immorality or evil or wickedness or imperfection. God could only be pleased to dwell in one who was without sin. And so the church father, Arenas, said, the glory of God is a person fully alive. Don't you love that? The glory of God is a person fully alive. And when we look to Christ, we see what humanity was meant to be like. We see humanity fully alive. God was pleased to dwell in Christ, and therefore he revealed to us what the fullness of humanity can actually be. And believe it or not, there are still more things we can consider about the fullness of God in Christ. It involves his presence and his character, his glory, his power, even his pleasure. But let's be apprehended one more time by what Paul writes in Colossians uh, chapter 1, verses 19 through 20. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And we need to include the Apostle John in this conversation. John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. The word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. So from the fullness of God, all that God is, comes reconciliation of all things. From the fullness of God, all that God is, comes grace upon grace, an unmerited gift of divine love that cannot love you any more or less in any given moment, but loves you to the full as you are, not as you were or will be, but as you are right now. But it's not just the fullness. From the pleasure of God comes the reconciliation of all things. From the pleasure of God comes grace upon grace upon grace. Friends, this is why salvation is, it's not proper to speak about salvation without speaking about the joy of salvation. It's good news of great joy for all people, according to Luke. And so we stop short of speaking accurately about salvation if we don't speak about the joy of it. And there's our own joy in it. I mean, there is joy in being redeemed. There's joy in being liberated. There's joy in being forgiven. There's joy in new life and new community and walking in the ways of Jesus. This is all joyously true. 
But the joy of salvation is also about the fullness of God, the full presence and character and power and glory and pleasure of God in saving us even through death on a cross. That for the joy set before him, writes the author of Hebrews, Christ endured the cross. What was the joy? You were. For the joy set before him, Jesus Christ endured the cross to bring many sons and daughters and people to the full glory of God, to experience his fullness, to share in his joy. If I don't get an amen, I'm just going to keep going. In Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Sometimes you just need one verse. Some of you are terrible at reading your Bibles. I know. It's okay. Pass. Remember this verse. Honestly, if you just take this verse with you every day, it'll change your life. How could you live a boring life? In Christ was the fullness of God. Do you see the fullness of God in him? Do you see it? So we've thought about the fullness. Let's talk about what it means to be filled, because it's the other part of this. You know, hopefully we have some sense about what I'm getting on about, this fullness of Christ. But then it should astonish us to read what Paul says in Ephesians and Colossians. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 through 23. God put all things under Christ's feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And similarly, in Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, Paul writes, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you've been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So the body of Christ, all of us here throughout history and the world, the church, believe it or not, is the fullness of him who fills all in all. I mean, think about that for a moment if you can. All the fullness of God dwells in Christ, and the church is the fullness of Christ. Each of us as members of his bodies, as his body, have been filled in him. Is that your lived experience? Or perhaps a better question, is that our lived experience? Because this isn't just about the fullness of Jesus filling individuals on their own, but filling his body. Did you notice that? The church is the fullness of Christ, and therefore the church shares in the fullness of God together, the many parts coming together as his body. But is that our lived experience? And how would we know if it is? So I want to answer that just by looking at two things. First, let's clarify what it means to be filled. And second, let's talk about how we go about it. So first, what does it mean to be filled? Paul writes to the Colossians, you've been filled in him. Filled is in the perfect passive. You know I'm getting serious when I bust out uh, grammar rules. But this is important for two reasons. It means filled is both something that has happened, is happening, and will continue to happen. It's a continuous event. You've been filled, you're being filled, you're going to be filled. You will be filled. You'll always be filled. Filled, 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 past, present, future. But it's also passive tense. This means God is the one doing the filling. It's a growth that comes from God. It's through his spirit that we're filled. 
But again, what does it mean then to be filled? It's something that has happened, is happening, and will happen. It's something God is doing in us. But how do we know if this is what God is doing in our midst? There's a few ways to think about it. Think about how people can be filled with emotions. You know, people can be filled with sorrow or great fear or with uh, wrath or fury or jealousy, uh, awe, amazement, joy, and, and wonder, anger. All these sort of things can fill us. Uh, people can be filled, we say, with knowledge or filled with wisdom. And throughout Scripture, people are filled with the Holy Spirit. And so in Ephesians, uh, for example, Paul writes, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery but be filled with the Spirit. So emotions, wisdom, the Spirit can help us get a sense of what being filled is all about. You know, when you're filled with a particular emotion, what happens? Well, often the emotion can take a hold of your actions and change how you behave and live for better or for worse. If you're filled with knowledge and wisdom, what happens? Well, this knowledge and wisdom you're filled with changes how you live. You discern what to do in a given situation for better or worse. If you're filled with alcohol to the point of being drunk, what happens? It changes how we behave, you know, often for worse. I don't want to say for better, but I'm thinking about my bachelor party from a long time ago, and I don't endorse it, but I got a little tipsy, and then I went through the bar and just told everyone about Jesus. So maybe that was for better. That's the last time I ever had too much alcohol, just to clarify, it was like 16 years ago, but probably for worse. But here's my point. If we're filled by the Spirit, we have to assume this means that God will fill us in such a way that it changes us. That when we're filled with his Spirit, how we act upon our feelings or desires or thoughts or hopes or relationships our words, our actions, our reactions, our calendar, our finances, when we're filled, God is in conversation with us about all of these things, shaping and influencing how we experience them and what we do with them. In other words, when you're filled with the Spirit, yes, you might feel some emotions. The Scripture talks about that. But you will fundamentally experience an empowerment to live more and look more and love more like Jesus through the power of the Spirit, because the Spirit takes a hold of us. Paul describes it like this in Galatians, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When we're filled, our life now derives and finds its meaning and purpose and actions in the death and resurrection of Jesus. We're filled to share in his love and to be guided and moved by his love and to live in the way of love. So that's what it is to be filled. But how do we go about being filled? You know, I've already said this is something God does, so do we just sit back and wait? And in some sense, yes. Like there is an active waiting, but there is a part for us to play. It doesn't mean we're uninvolved in that. In Colossians, for example, Paul says, we can grow in the fullness of Christ by holding fast to him. That makes sense. In Ephesians, Paul says, we grow in the fullness of Christ by speaking the truth in love, which isn't just correcting people through exhortation, but encouraging one another as well through the truth. 
And I could say a ton about either of these points, but for the purposes of our morning, I want to focus in on our reading from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 13 through 19. Here's what Paul prays. I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of Christ. What a prayer. If you want to be filled, we pray. And I know that seems like the cheap, obvious answer. And I know you might be thinking, well, I have prayed, and I haven't felt this fullness yet. But the answer is, we pray. It's the only answer. What else could we do? Think about it. Paul says that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. What does that mean to Paul? It means that Christ will dwell in our hearts through faith. If you have faith that Jesus Christ really is Lord, he really did rise from the dead and defeat the grave, he comes to dwell in your heart through your faith in him. Not just your emotions, your entire being. Paul says this means you'll be rooted and grounded in love. That will be the fundamental defining reality for you. Not just some subjective love, but the love of God. It means you'll begin to comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know this love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So a paradoxical love. I mean, it doesn't get much more astounding than this. This is why Christianity cannot be boring. The Christian life is a journey into comprehending and knowing what is immeasurable and incomprehensible. The paradox of God's love being revealed to us through his spirit as we pray. So the fullness of God, the fullness of Christ is the fullness of love. But did you notice something? Weakness is assumed. So if you're feeling a disconnect, if you're feeling a gap, if you're feeling weak, like you're not filled, you're in the perfect position. Weakness is assumed. You notice Paul actually prays before all of those amazing things, what? that we may be strengthened with power so that he prays we may have strength to comprehend this love of Christ, strength to know this love that surpasses knowledge, strength, power in the spirit so that we can be filled with the fullness of God. So we can't comprehend or know this love by our own strength. Uh, there's a popular worship song with a lyric that gets at this. He is jealous for me. Love's like a hurricane. I am a tree bending beneath the weight of his wind and mercy. So God is like a hurricane. It is power. It's a force to be reckoned with. And we need God to first strengthen us with power so that we can even experience his love. Can you imagine such a profound love? Can you imagine, like if you're falling in love with someone and the person sitting across from you said, wait, 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 hold on a second. You're going to need to do a few more push-ups, maybe take, you know, a little supplements, get yourself a little stronger if you're going to be strong enough for my love. I mean, that would be weird and a little creepy, and it's probably a terrible illustration. But my point is this. We're not 
used to thinking we first need some conditioning, some strengthening in order to be loved. For the most part, as humans, we assume love. Now, we might think, will I ever be loved? Sure, but if there's a person there across the table, we assume there's a possibility of giving and receiving love, whether it's in a family or a friendship or a romantic relationship. We just kind of assume we have the strength for it. And now scripture says that may be true in human relationships, but when it comes to the living God, you are too weak for his love. His love is too strong. You first need the Holy Spirit to intervene in your weakness and strengthen you with power so that you can begin to get a glimpse, a taste of this love. The Spirit must strengthen us. No wonder one scholar says, without him, uh, people always remain scattered fragments. We remain incomplete, unable to attain the true end of our existence. Because God is both the strength to be loved and the source of love. And this is why we have to pray. I mean, what else can you do? Yes, we can hold fast to Christ the best we can. Yes, we can speak the truth in love. But without prayer, without the Spirit intervening and strengthening us, we cannot know his love. I want to share an experience written by Al Lopez in his book, Road to Flourishing. And I read it this week, and I was so surprised by what I read, because Al Lopez is not a mystic. He worked most of his life in HR, and he continues his work as he helps Christian organizations build healthy cultures. So in all the culture change that we're experiencing for our team, I thought, hey, I should read this book on eight keys to boost employee engagement and well-being. I wasn't expecting a mystical encounter to be in the introduction. So here's what he wrote. I'm just going to read it in length because I think it's beautiful. Here's a normal, everyday person in HR, which we should celebrate, encountering the face of God in a life-transforming way. I began to see God's face. So, sorry, context. He had a Bible study on a Saturday. The theme was the face of God. The following Monday before going to work, he thought he would pray. So I began to seek God's face in a more literal, concrete way than I've ever had before. With my eyes closed, which maybe you could do this, I began to think of an appropriate image of God's face. No portrayal I had seen seemed to look right, but then I remember that scripture says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So I decided to focus on the face of Jesus visual, visually trying to strip away the accumulated imagination of European artists, no blonde hair or blue eyes, and see him as the first century 30-year-old Palestinian Jew that he was. Lopez continues, once I constructed the image of Jesus' face and it was fixed in my mind, things changed. The image took over my imagination, starting with his dark pupils, then coalescing and spreading, his face burned away into a single blazing beam of living light shining directly on me. I felt warm in its radiance, and I quickly realized that the feeling was love. My viewpoint shifted to hover above the room, and I saw my body in the chair being bathed in the light like a liquid. Then I saw my body elevated, wrapped on all sides by light, penetrating my flesh until the boundary between me and the love of Christ was erased, merging into one without my individuality being extinguished. 
The light was radiating from outside into me and from my insides out like a glowing ember. I felt indescribable love, peace, contentment. In this state of rapture, the Lord began showing me what life could be like if I lived fully in his love. And so here are eight keys to boost employee engagement and well-being. I had to put the book down and be like, what did I just read? And I'm charismatic as they come. I mean, I describe myself as charismatic with my seatbelt on, but I'm as charismatic as they come. And this was just so breathtaking. What did he do? Al Lopez, who worked in HR, prayed on a Monday morning. Then he went to work. And this is the kind of prayer God loves to answer because God wants us to be filled with the fullness of Christ. Now, I understand, like, I need to qualify this a little bit, and I'm reluctant to do so, but I think I need to, because we may not all have this kind of experience. Some of you, you will live your entire Christian life faithfully and never have an experience like this, and that has nothing to do with your fidelity or trust or love for God. These experiences are more abnormal than the baseline of normality for the Christian life. And even so, when someone shares an experience like this, we can claim it as our own because we're all united in Christ. What Al Lopez experienced with Christ was not just for his benefit, but for ours too. And I know many of you have prayed for this kind of experience, and I think it is good and right to do so, and you're still waiting. During my sabbatical, uh, I memorized Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16 through 19, this prayer of Paul, and, and I prayed it every single day. And it's hard to believe it was a year ago that my sabbatical started. And just before I went, Preston, that scoundrel who departed from us, he, he spoke over me before my sabbatical began. He said this, may you love the Lord more than you ever have six months from now. And I thought, yep, that's it. That's the only thing I want for my sabbatical." And so I turned to Ephesians 3, and again and again, I prayed it. I prayed it every single day for the Lord to dwell in me and to give me an experience of this profound love, the fullness of God. I prayed it every single day, and it's a year later, and I'm still praying this prayer, and it hasn't gone unanswered, but I haven't had any experience like the one Al Lopez had, at least not yet. Now, Hear me, I don't mean to imply that I haven't had my own encounters of God's love over the years. But they're the abnormal exception. They're not the normal experience. I've certainly felt assured of his love, comforted by his love, felt the joy and warmth of his love. But here's my point. If we start praying, as Paul does, to be strengthened with power so that we can know the love of God, we may or may not have ecstatic experiences like the one I shared from Lopez. But even so, even if we don't have this kind of experience, it doesn't mean that God hasn't answered our prayer. It just means it might not look like what we were expecting. Because love is an emotion and it is a way of being. So no matter how God answers this prayer, as God fills us, as the Spirit strengthens us to grasp his love on display in Christ, 
It's so that we can join God's loving way of being in the world. If you love just a little bit more like Jesus loved, that's God filling you with his spirit. Stop taking credit for it. Stop thinking you're so great at loving people. You're not. I'm not. But through God's grace and his empowering presence, we can be. And this is what Mr. Lopez said, isn't it? The Lord began showing me what life could be like if I lived fully in his love. That was the message. Yes, there's this incredible experience, but the message was this is what life can be like. You're invited into this fullness of my love. I'm going to fill you so that you can love the way my son loves. Every single morning, for the most part, I write down this phrase, a full life is the fullness of God. That's my personal vocational statement. If you've read Rhythms for Life, you know what I mean. But a full life is the fullness of God. And I sit with this. I meditate on it. I pray into it. And while I may or may not have a personal experience with the Lord over this, here's something I don't want to overlook in this prayer. Verse 18, Paul prays that we'll have power so that together with all the Lord's holy people, we'll grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. So this fullness, yes, is something I can personally encounter with the Lord in prayer, but this fullness is for all of us that together we may grasp this. Don't overlook that part. We're so trained to think of ourselves and Christ, but it is us and Christ, the body and Christ, the church and Christ, and we are all members, and the fullness of Christ fills the body, and together we encounter his love. You see, I prayed this for my whole sabbatical, and when I got back, I thought, all right, I didn't have the experience, but I do think I love Jesus a little more now than I did six months ago, I hope. And, and I got back to work. And the way the Lord started answering this prayer for me was you. Was sitting down with people and hearing how you've been doing. The ways God has been working in your life or the ways you need him to work in his life. Hearing stories about how people have been taking care of one another or showing mercy or seeking justice in different ways. And every time I would encounter another follower of Jesus in this small little body called St. Peter's Fireside, I felt like the Lord was answering my prayer. The love of being with the Lord's people, doing life in the name of Jesus, that is a fundamentally like, core way that Jesus answers this prayer. So friends, the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. The church is the fullness of Christ, and we're being filled by him through his spirit in prayer. No wonder Paul prays these words, now to him who's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. We can't dare imagine what God will do because that's how great his love is. And as he fills us, we're going to be people who show mercy, who seek justice, who pursue his kingdom and show the world how good the love of Christ is. So the only thing we can do is pray. So let's do that.